the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have a very special guest on our show. We have Greg Anton. He is a cannabis attorney who has done some really prolific things through the legalization process. He is also an amazing drummer for the influential group Zero. Um, So artist, author, attorney, welcome, Greg. It's so great to have you on the show today. Well, it's good to be here, Sarah, and thank you for all your good work. Oh, you know, it takes all of us to do this. And one of the things that I love the most about our work is getting to sit down and have great conversations with people like you. And before we like get into like the really nitty gritty and nerd out on this, what was your first cannabis experience? Um, I smoked some pot when I was 18 years old in Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up in Hartford and the the happening scene was in Boston. And we went up and uh, scored some pot and took a few hits on a joint. Uh, And uh, the difference in in perspective after smoking pot really impacted me. Uh, I thought it was a very positive thing. Um, I still do. I've been smoking pot now uh for 50 years um i'm a very moderate user these days i'll take one or two puffs a week um on a you know if i'm playing music or doing fixing a fence or something like that um but i find it uh i found i find it a very helpful substance yeah yeah do you um what was it that got you into working in the legal aspects of cannabis? Um, I got busted for pot oh, many, many years ago, a little bit of pot, and just thought it was very unfair, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And it got me going, and a lot of my friends were getting busted. And the whole thing, the whole prohibition thing, uh, just my anti authoritarian um, uh, attitude just got me going. What are you guys doing? There's nothing wrong with this plant. It's crazy. And the more I learn about it and the more I learn about prohibition, uh, it is crazy. And it's still a Schedule One substance under federal law, which makes no sense at all to me. And so... Uh, when I first was exposed to that, to what was going on, um, I would, not to jump ahead, but I took the rational basis of the Schedule One uh, designation of marijuana up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I got a lot, a, a vir- virtually a room full of documents. And some of the documents I got were transcripts from the Oval Office. Uh, of things that Richard Nixon and his administration people said at that time. And it's in writing that he said, well, we can't make it against the law to be a hippie, but we can make pot against the law and then use that to get into the hippies' cars and houses and bust them. So let's make it illegal. 
that was 1970. Um, so it is, I was, the, my anti-authoritarian feelings were correct that, uh, it was people, people were imposing their beliefs, uh, unfairly on other people. You know, it's, it's crazy when you think about that. Like I remember growing up in Michigan and where you could go to jail for just resin in your pipe. And, you know, now, of course, it's a whole different thing, as is Massachusetts. But back then, it's like all I understood was that something that I enjoyed wasn't legal, and I had to be careful about it. And then you start to unpack all the politics around, you know, the prohibition from, like, even earlier, like, with Anslinger, then to Nixon. It's like these two main points where it's like this, is, this isn't even about the substance. It's about targeting a certain group of people or... In the Anslinger thing, also it was an, it was also economic greed because you know you had the Duponts and our own William Randolph Hearst. I just it, I think it's a very eye opening thing for people to learn more about that and to see how that applies in other areas of of policy as well. Not and it's not being conspiracy theorists because as you said, you have the transcripts that you know these policies were made to target individuals who were. I mean, especially when you're talking about the hippies, they're empowered and talking about a different, better way to live. Um, it just blows my mind. It's a cultural uh, attitude or anti-cultural attitude um, or this culture versus that culture. You know, it's going on today with the stuff that Ron DeSantis is doing about culture. Uh, people want other people to act the way they want them to. And um, and I think it's about freedom, you know. I, I I think anybody that's ever done a psychedelic drug recognizes the way it opens your mind, and I think uh, there's a real um, attitude against uh, that 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 kind of a perspective. Yeah, I um, I thought. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm interrupting. Well, I just think that. You know, I mean, I, my, my feelings are very strong about that kind of thing. I mean, I believe, you know, the whole anecdotal story about Grace Slick putting LSD in the water cooler at the White House uh, or trying to. I think she did, didn't actually do it, but talked about it. Um, I, I think that's a good idea. And, and I've I never think, heard that story. That's awesome. I don't think anybody's going to take a psychedelic drug and sit on a beach in Santa Barbara and say, Oh, there's a good, there's a good place for an oil well. It just changes your perspective and you see things differently. And I think the government who wants control over people uh, recognizes that. And that's the basis for a lot of the prohibition attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the things that we're seeing, especially now coming up after the last presidency, I feel like if people would actually look within and and face their own issues, maybe they wouldn't be so worried about other people's bodies. Yeah, that's a good thought. But, you know, it's that whole diversion thing. It's like, I don't want to think about what's going on with me. I'm just going to point the fingers at other people and keep myself busy that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's come back uh in a, in a funny way um that i've been thinking about lately you know the, the reason that the, the price of cannabis 
and has uh, been so expensive is because of the high risk, because of the prohibition and the Ill illegality of it. Mm -hmm. But it takes, and this is just a really wild estimate, but very just from my own um, experience as a very basic home gardener, uh, it takes approximately the same amount of dirt and sunshine and water uh, to grow a pound of tomatoes as it does a pound of pot, just very roughly. Uh, and there we were, a pound of pot is three or $4,000 and a pound of tomatoes is two or $3. And so when something is three or $4,000 a pound, people start really paying attention to it. Yeah. And that that's what happened. And, the, and then people said, well, I can sell something for, you know, thousands of dollars a pound if if I can show that it's uh, stops uh, helps for glaucoma or it helps for this medical condition or that medical condition, and it got pe people really checking it out. Now, um, people have put energy into heirloom tomatoes and got them way up to three, four, five dollars a pound but not three, four, five thousand dollars a pound. Um, and if the, it's it's what prohibition accomplished, I think. Um, and you know, if you do make anything, prohibit anything, I, I've always believed that if, if there was, if you made coffee illegal within a very short time, there would be concentrated coffee powder that people would be snorting and shooting and smoking. And and kids would be doing twenty five espressos, and uh, oh, that's what that's what prohibition would accomplish, and uh, that's what you can't. That, that's what happened with with alcohol prohibition. I just think about doing that much espresso and like how that would just rip my stomach up. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It's it prohibition changes so much. I mean, even when we're looking at like youth access in cannabis, the more we go into legalization, the more it's normalized, the more kids are like, yeah, you know, my parents do that or my uncle does that, whatever. It's, you know, they look at it more as if it's something that actually appeals to them rather than being drawn to it because it's an illicit substance that they're curious about. On that, on that issue, I read the most interesting fact. This was about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, there were a handful of states that um, the drinking age was 18 and not 21. And then they made a big push uh, nationally. And now today, every the drinking age in every state is 21. So when they switched it from 18 to 21, and then they did a study a few years later, um, they found out that more kids between the ages of 18 and 21 started drinking alcohol when it was made illegal. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just remember like my old poli sci teacher telling us about that. And they were, he was like, this is why when you're old enough to vote, you should vote because you can vote at 18 and all these kids stayed home and didn't vote. And then all that changed. And, and we were all like, oh, oh, so like if we don't get active, it impacts our lives. And I feel like 
we have to have more conversations about that because I feel like a lot of people have become really politically disengaged. Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah. So, um, getting back to this, uh, really became, there, there was a bunch of history, but before, before 1970, there was taxation on it and you had to, spe had to get a special tax, uh, a special stamp and this and that, and to use marijuana in, in, in the United States. And then in 1970, um, Richard Nixon created the Controlled Substance Act. Um, Congress created it. Richard Nixon was pushing on it. And it designated, I think there's five schedules of substances. W alcohol, by the way, is not scheduled. It's a, not a scheduled substance. Uh, but marijuana, heroin, uh, meth, methamphetamines they uh, lsd cocaine no that's not true it's an, it's it's scheduled not okay. scheduled Co cocaine is scheduled too oh less uh less considered less dangerous than marijuana oh that's crazy it's crazy and uh, the the prescription drugs like valium and, and oxycontin and so forth are scheduled three and then i think it goes down to um the ingredients they have in cough syrup and those kinds of things, they're, they're scheduled. Um, but to have to schedule, so Richard Nixon scheduled marijuana as schedule one, the most among the most dangerous substances with no medical use anywhere in the United States. That, that's the definition of a schedule one uh, substance. Um, and it's been challenged by myself and other lawyers, um, Joe Elford challenged it in a, a D.C. circuit. I challenged it in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and there's been different challenges of it, and it's all failed. Um, looking into the possibility, uh, with the support of Normal, of uh, making another challenge at this time. It just, every year, it just seems more and more crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but getting to, I guess, why you contacted me, there's this case, uh, you contacted me about the Rohrabacher Amendment, which was passed, uh, I think, in 2014. Uh, it was May of 2014. It, and it's a, what it is, it was Dana Rohrabacher is a U.S. congressman from Orange County, California. And the anecdotal story is that uh, Rohrbacher, for the first time in his life, got a decent night's sleep when he put cannabis cream on his arthritic shoulder and said, hey, this stuff worked. And he's actually a very conservative guy. Um, but he was convinced of the efficacy of uh, cannabis cream that he used. Um, so he got this bipartisan uh, bill passed in both houses of Congress and at that time signed by Obama um, that defunded the Department of Justice from using funds to prosecute state compliant 
patients that are compliant with their own state law. And I was involved in, uh, in California. So the fir first thing they did, the federal government, is they started busting, piece, busting people even more. And they said, you can't stop us from busting pot. This is crazy. This amendment is, is not going to fly. So the first person they went after uh, was my client, Lynette Shaw, uh, who's in Marin County, California. And she kind of invented the first licensed cannabis dispensary. Yeah, Lynette's a legend. Yeah. There was a proposition to, uh, what was it, 215 in, in, in California in 1996 that legalized uh, marijuana for medical use um, with a doctor's recommendation. Um, so she opened a dispensary in Marin County, California. They went after her and, and uh, put an injunction on her doing business. Um, they put a lot of energy into it. And I challenged it in federal court based on this Warbacher Amendment. So my case was really the first test of this amendment. Um, and uh, it took a couple few years of litigation, and the government fought it and fought it. And um, they just have it in, the, in their DA, DNA to, you know, bust people for pot. That, that was their history, and, and that's what they do. They're still doing it today to some extent. Um, and we succeeded in federal court, and we got a district court order from Charles Breyer, who's the brother of the former U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. And he basically said that the government's interpretation of the, um, of the Warbacher Amendment was, he basically said it was crazy. He said it, it just was made no sense at all. And so that allowed... Lynette to distribute medical marijuana in California free of federal interference. And then everybody else jumped on board. And uh, today we're still doing that. But it had to, it, it was part of a treasury bill. That's the only way that Rohrbacher could get the amendment passed. Um, it was about money. And the DOJ could not spend money to go bust somebody. Um, so the, he defunded them, basically. It was their first act of defunding the cops. Uh, and it worked, and it's so, the president had to sign it, but every year, and it was just kind of tagged along, people weren't even paying attention to it since then, it tagged along with the uh, treasury bills that keep the government open and funded every year. The end of the fiscal year is, is September, and as everybody's aware, uh, the government is on the verge of being shut down every year because they're fighting over money for whatever, contraceptives or money for this or money for that, and then tag along is this bill that you can't have money to prosecute people who are compliant with their own state laws. And so every president has signed it every year uh including donald trump and 
Um, so it's an it's an, it's a, it's in effect today. It's also it's an interesting study too on the fact that a lot of times people assume that cannabis is something that is just a, a, an issue that's supported by liberals, but it actually is much more bipartisan than most people realize. I think that's true. I think, you know, I mean, it's hard to believe that anybody thinks that marijuana is among the most dangerous drugs, uh, you know, more dangerous than cocaine and so forth. It's uh, it's really, a, you know, everybody says over and over, you know, nobody's ever died from an overdose of marijuana. And um, I think that's true. And there's another fact about cannabis is maybe changing the subject a little bit, but I want to mention it on your show is that the cannabis plant has the highest aerosol effect of any plant on earth. And that means its ability to exchange CO2 for oxygen. And so it's really is the answer to, you know, or part of the answer to our climate problems. And if we had some patches of 10,000 acres of cannabis take sucking the CO2 out of the air, and it also takes CO2 out of the soil, the carbon, um, it, it would really help the environment. I mean, the second, the second fastest growing plant, I think, is certain strains of bamboo. The oh, fast, yeah. The fastest growing tree, I think, is a willow tree. And it takes a willow tree. I mean, anybody that's seen a pot plant knows, you know, the amount of foliage that you get from growing in one season. And it takes 10 years for a willow tree to get the size of a big pot plant. Uh, that a pot plant gets away in whatever a season, four, six, eight months uh, of growing. So that much foliage, um, you know, helps the environment and takes the carbon out of the air. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the arguments for people who oppose cannabis is that it has a negative environmental impact. But what we really need to be looking at there is who's growing it and what methods are they using and are they responsible cultivators, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Part of my case, one of the big issues the government was making is, oh, we can't have cannabis dispensaries because there'll be crime around the dispensaries. It's just it's 180 degrees uh, what the tr- away from the truth. It's the safest place you can go in almost any community is a cannabis dispensary. There's so much security and so much regulation and there's the, the the crime compared to you know a bar or a liquor store or you know there's all kinds of places a dance those dance nightclubs um where people are doing other harder drugs um there's a lot of more crime in, the, in those situations and i gave the example uh this was actually printed in the los angeles times they said and when i was doing this case they said well we talked to attorney Greg Anton up in Sonoma County, and he says there's a, a dispensary where he lives that sells guns, narcotics, and hard liquor, and they're, they allow children inside. And it's called Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's true. Was this gonna... what was on the, the was this your um the article that was on the front page of the Times? Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, and it's true, you know, you, there's a you can go walking in Walmart, there'll be a guy with a a shotgun and a gallon of Jack Daniels and a prescription for Oxycontin holding on to his five-year-old child. And that's legal. But marijuana, oh, we better watch out. You know, some kids are going to get near a dispensary and who knows what could happen. It's just crazy, the the the, the attitude about marijuana. Yeah, well, it's the manipulation of the lens through which we see the world, right? It's like when people talk about you know youth access in dispensaries when i'm when i'm working with my policy hat on i'm like i don't think you understand like if it's a reputable dispensary that's following all the rules you could show up in your 80s and not have an id and they will not let you in so how the heck is a kid going to get in i mean when i worked in a dispensary and i'd have parents coming by and they'd want to stop in it'd be like you're going to have to stop in without your kids. They can't come in. Even if it's a baby, I'm just holding them. No. No children. Nobody under 21 is allowed in, no matter how well supervised they are. Not even if you're coming in to pick up, you know, an online order. You're going to have to, you know, bring your partner and have them hold the kid while you, you know, duck in the store. But it's not happening. And people don't understand how serious that is, how serious the industry is about that and how serious the regulations are around that. I think marijuana is the most regulated substance in the, the in the country. Uh, and there and everybody knows the stories about people having toxic toxic uh, effects from using too much Tylenol or or cough syrup or this or that or all kinds of things or people getting very unhealthy from using too, too many hot dogs or you know you name it uh, and they're not regulated anywhere near the way that marijuana is regulated oh yeah I mean that's I was just actually reading about um, this company that actually has I think I think that there are vegan meals and they had ready to make smoothies and there was just this article that I was reading about how they had this lentil mix that their subscribers were getting and it was like 135 people ended up going to the hospital over it and 40 of them ended up getting their gallbladder removed. Wow. Cannabis, do you ever hear anything like that about cannabis? I never have. I, You know, I have, I know people that are Addicted to cannabis. Uh, yeah, you can have I, a bad relationship, absolutely. And I know people that are addicted to alcohol and cigarettes and to food and to uh, people addicted to exercise and people addicted to not exercising. And uh, people get addicted uh, to all kinds of things, but, um, to, you know... They're addicted to driving, and they don't make cars illegal. And it's it, it's the whole thing is really upside down. I'll tell you, I did a uh, a, a, culti a cannabis cultivation case in northeastern California, at, in Sacramento Federal Court uh, last year, and I met in a meeting with the two top prosecutors there in Sacramento. 
federal prosecutors, I said, you know, I said, did you guys ever hear those stories about they find a guy on a remote Japanese island still shooting at people because they didn't know World War II was over? I said, you guys are like that. I said, the war is over. Give it up. Put your guns down. And they didn't even crack a smile. And they were just, no, no, we're going to get this guy. And um, But I will tell you something that not many people know is um, um, Donald Trump pardon right before he right before biden was inaugurated uh like weeks before he pardoned i think 12 marijuana defendants who were serving long-term prison sentences in federal in federal prison for marijuana um there's a well-known federal case the guy's name is noah kleinman uh, in los angeles and he had a, a dispensary in Los Angeles, licensed by the county of Los Angeles, licensed by the state of California. It was all on the up and up. Somebody sent up a couple of pounds to the East Coast. They're not sure if it was an employee or somebody working out the back door or whatever. But he got busted for interstate trafficking of cannabis and got went to trial and got 13 years in prison. And um, he was pardoned um, by, what's his name, Donald Trump's son-in-law. Oh, uh, Jared Kushner. Kushner, yeah. Kushner, sorry. Yes. Right. Um, and, you know, ironically, the reason that he was serving 13 years is because of the minimum mandatory sentencing that Joe Biden passed in 1995, and he was very vociferous about it, uh, and he was very anti-drug. And now, where is Joe Biden on this issue? Uh, it's anybody's guess. I don't know. I thought, um, you know, I did a lot of work for Obama in 2008, doing benefit concerts and writing letters and doing everything I could. And uh, I thought he was going to get in the Oval Office and say, hey, I'm going to take a hit of pot tonight instead of having a martini and because there's nothing wrong with it. And it helps me relax. And that's it. That's what I believed. And uh, in 2012, I wrote Obama a letter and asked him for my money back. <laughs> Did he give it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's a huge point, you know, listening to what the people want and actually supporting that. Because I remember um, talking to Roger McNamee, and when Hillary was running against uh, Trump, he had a conversation with her and told her, you know, you should really step up and support cannabis legalization because it would it would help you run for office. And and she moonwalked away from that, too. And I think it's a real opportunity that's missed because, you know, it's the polls show that people, more people than ever are supporting legalization. And like the experience that, you know, Dana Rohrbacher had with the aha moment with cannabis, a lot of people are having that. And they are starting with things like topicals or like, wait a minute, you mean this was available and this is actually this this could help me and i 
you know, stigma has kept me away from something that could create relief for me. That's crazy. And I also think that when we're looking at the movement, because we're getting into legalization and we have a lot of big businesses coming in and they're like, we don't want to worry about medical. We just want to do recreational. That's it. Medical's gone. This is all that we want to deal with because everything else is really complicated. They're doing themselves a great disservice because when we do engage people from the medical aspects, I think that's when we get more people who are really passionate about seeing good policy go through and especially on a national level and looking at like interstate commerce and having access to products that can give them relief. Yeah. I think our mutual friend Ed Rosenthal said to me one time, uh, he thinks that all cannabis use is medical use Mm -hmm. uh, one way or another. But I guess you could, you know, you could say that about water. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I jokingly say that, you know, it's like, there are just certain foods that like are medicinal use too. Like occasionally when I have like a, when I'm having a really bad day and I decide that I want to have a little bit of chocolate and get that anandamide from the chocolate, it's like, that's my medicinal chocolate use, you know? (laughs) But it's, it's, it's something that I think is really important to talk about because whether, you know, I, I, I have colleagues that disagree with that. They're like, no, I used to think everything was medical use. And now I don't because I've seen examples, but I think if you're at home and you're having a hard day and you smoke a little bit of something just to kind of just see the world through a different lens and relax and decompress, it's like, well, what kind of impact is that having on your body and your cortisol levels? And what impact is that having on your relationship with, you know, your spouse or or whoever you're living with? Like, it creates, you know, more harmony and, and calm. And, you know, it's, it's like I always say, you never hear about anybody smoking a joint and beating their kids. Or when I used to throw cannabis events, and it was always so hard to find a venue because they were like, oh, weed event? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then afterwards, they'd be like, that was just the nicest group of people. And you didn't trash my bathroom. No one got in a fight. No one threw up. I'm like, yeah. And we're all out by midnight because everyone wants to get home after a certain point. It's like, it's just, it's, it's just really interesting to see, you know, how people's views change with that. Um, there was also something that you had mentioned earlier. Oh, when you were talking about defunding um, the police around, you know, it can't about uh, prosecuting or actually raiding cannabis dispensaries and things like that. That's also a great example of, you know, how through the pandemic they were talking about defunding the police and a lot of conservatives were like, oh, that means that they want the police to go away and what will we do and it'll be chaos. And it's like, no, it means it's defunding certain programs so that they can actually work on things that count. Like it's not about getting rid of law enforcement. It's about adjusting what they're concentrating on, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and, and Sonoma County now, I don't know that much about it, but I've just read in in a local newspaper about a a mental health uh, response team that takes a large percentage of police calls and they go there without guns and uh, they're mentally health, they're, they're mental health professionals. I mean, I think, you know, I think the highest paid people instead of they're actually the lowest paid people the highest paid public servants should be cops and teachers 
And I think, you know, cops should be paid a quarter of a million dollars a year and they should all have PhDs in philosophy and psychology. Yep. And and uh, be the top people instead. Uh, I don't know about you, but I know the guys in my high school who became cops and they <laughs> were the bullies. They were yeah. the worst students. They were the biggest bullies. And then they became the local cops. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I just had that conversation not too long ago that, you know, some of the guys that I went to school with that became cops, I was like, ah, oh, geez, you're like the ones that I wanted to avoid in the hallway. Like you're the one shoving people into lockers. Like where, why the hell are you getting this job? Yeah. That's I mean, sad. It, it can be. Yeah. I was, yeah. A cop saved my life when I was 13 years old and I had a uh, bad accident. And uh, I was glad for that. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I know some good cops, but um, a, a long career policeman, a long time career policeman that I know said that he's, he said about 85% of the time when the police show up, the situation gets worse. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I mean, and and like you said, there there are there are you know people in the police force that are great and they're there for the right reasons. But we've got to figure out a way to make sure that the people that aren't that are like bringing their baggage to work, which hurts people, that they're not in the mix, and we find them something else that they like to do, and that pays them well, and so that they're happy. It's not that they're you know that they should suffer. It's just that they don't have the aptitude to protect and serve, right? I'm with you, yeah. Yeah. What, <laughs> we got all into that. But let's let's talk about um let's talk about cannabis and creativity because you've you've been a musician for a very long time. Your the band Zero that you've been a part of for decades has been very influential, especially for other artists. And I was actually just listening to some of your earlier stuff this morning and then some of your more recent recordings, which was it was beautiful morning music, by the way. Um, but I like to talk about that. Uh, but before we get into the music, you actually wrote a book. I wrote a book about a musician. <laughs> it's a it's a novel. It's called Face the Music. Mm hmm. It's available on everywhere, bookstores or Amazon, and and uh, it's about a guitar player um, who smokes pot and writes songs, and there's a whole plot, and uh, I wrote songs with Robert Hunter, the lyricist, the Grateful Dead lyricist, and he wrote, a, and the song in the book is called Stephanie. And Robert Hunter wrote a song called Stephanie and helped me. He actually helped me uh, write the book. Oh, that's And you've done quite a, a few songs with him, haven't you? I wrote 27 songs with Robert Hunter. Wow. What was that like? Oh, it was such an honor. The guy was so prolific and so well read and just all those famous lines of his that everybody's so familiar with, I've watched him just pull him out of thin air he was just kind of a ma magician uh really really good and he just he had that skill of putting words to music yeah uh, and he was really really skilled at it uh wonderful guy I, I think about like as a songwriter myself 
sometimes for me having a couple puffs to just get into flow state and not be so in my head about what something's going to sound like or, you know, reminding myself that it's not written in stone, that it's made to be edited, you know, it has always been really helpful. Was that any part of your process? Editing? Or just writing in general. Like for me, it's like when I'm writing, I'll be like, oh, it's got to be perfect. And it's like, no, you can go back and change things. But when I have like a couple puffs, it almost shuts that inner critic off. And it's like, let's just have fun and dig in and like just go places with this. Yeah. When I was working on my book, Face Music, um, about half the time that I was working on it, I smoked pot. Um, and pot, I find pot makes me more honest. And so if I review what I've written, if I take a hit of pot and review what I've written, I would see uh, at times I would recognize my ego coming forward, which I didn't want. Um, I wanted the characters to speak. Um, and so, you know, and then there's a bunch of characters in my book and some of the characters you would never write their dialogue without a puff of pot. And then there's other characters. You'd only write about them after a couple cups of coffee <laughs> in the morning, you know? Right. And another character you'd only write after a hit a pot and a glass of wine late at night. And they're the kind of characters um, that they are. And let them, I try to let the characters speak. I'm just finishing my sequel to Face the Music and hope to have it published uh, oh, probably early next year. Oh, that's awesome. I can't yeah. wait for it to come on. And I'm I'm definitely going to pick up your first book and check that out because I, I'm, I'm an avid reader. I love to read that, but also just, you know, an artist writing about artists. There's like, there's just that insight that you don't get from somebody who's just writing about something they haven't experienced and as a as a drummer, because I know, you know, there's a there's a lot that people don't understand about drumming, and I'm I'm probably going to leave out a bunch of stuff that you know that I have no concept of because I'm a singer. <laughs> I've only dated drummers. <laughs> but, <I'm hating> them. <laughs> what? Nothing. I was going to make a drummer joke. I always love drummer jokes. <laughs> you know, you go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, there's there's the physical aspect of drumming. Like, you know, it's like when I was, my husband's a huge Rush fan, so he always talks about Neil Peart. And I, and I actually got to see him once when he had the drums in the round, and I was like, holy shit, that's really crazy. Like, how does the man do that? But you're not only keeping time and doing like all these interesting things with the drums and cymbals, but it's just extraordinarily physical. Like, a drummer... You know, especially like the drummers that are like all over the place. It's like, how long can you do that before you start wearing things out? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, where does cannabis come into play with your practice as a drummer? Um, you know, it just makes me feel more creative. Uh, and, and I have used it, um, you know, my wrists and ankles and everything. It's playing a rock and roll gig is really a physical endeavor. My friend works with uh, John Fishman from Fish, and he was recently, I guess, in the dressing room, and someone came up to John and said, 
Wow, because they play really long sets. He says, man, that was you must get quite a workout. And Fishman said, yeah, just try, never mind anything else. Just try sitting on a stool for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, uh, it's a real strenuous physical thing. But uh, I love playing the drums. It's playing the drums is really fun. Uh, I don't know what to say i've been playing for years and years um uh playing the drums is fun yeah so i try to write about it but you know the the writer publicist dennis mcnally yeah so he read an early version of my book face the music and uh he said greg this is a you know nice book but uh there's like two, three sentences in the whole book about drummers. It's just about guitar players. And I hadn't even realized it. But my whole career, everywhere I look, I, I see a guitar player. Um, That's because they're the showboaters. I'm married to one. <laughs> stages full of guitar players. Uh, so I've been really lucky. I've played with a lot of really good guitar players and always loved electric guitar music would you ever write something that's more about the drummer's experience um i've thought about it there's a little bit about it there's a drummer in my book yeah yeah and my second book which i'm just finishing up he's more prominent of a character and he's kind of a stereotypical drummer what now okay that's what i want to hear from you because like you know when you're saying drummer jokes like i love drummer jokes i have a lot of friends that are drummers but i i really like and and we joke about what a stereotypical drummer is but i want to hear from you as a drummer what you think who you think a stereotypical drummer is oh geez it's not so easy as people think um you know if you try to really accurately you mentioned Neil Peart or uh, John Bonham or Ringo Starr. You try to exactly copy what they have done on their instrument. It's not easy. Right. Those and those accomplished drummers. My one of my heroes was Joe Morello. Mm. Uh, I saw him play when I was very young. He's he was just masterful. He did a he. I saw him did when I was 16 years old. My dad took me to see him. He did a drum solo. He kept his right hand up in the air and then did a 20-minute drum solo with his left hand. Um, I saw Ginger Baker play. He was an influence on me. Those guys are really accomplished musicians uh, and recognize, um, you know, recognize here comes the chorus, here comes the bridge. It's time to make a move to support the song and so playing drums is all about supporting songs yeah so uh are you gonna give me that uh the drummer joke i, I i'm, I'm <laughs> here for, i'm here for it <laughs> i'll give you one next time okay okay it's a deal it's a deal yeah. so when we're, we're looking at cannabis in general you know so We've covered a lot today. We've talked about, you know, creativity. We've talked about policy. We've talked about you've done some really prolific work with getting cannabis 
you know, basically like, you know, the business, the industry, um, helping with a lot of the legal issues that have happened and really correcting a lot of the injustice that's been done. We have a lot still to do. But when you look to the future, what are you excited about? What are you hopeful around? The kids. I talked to my son-in-law recently. He's about uh, 30 years old. And he said, you know, Greg, I've looked at the culture that you grew up in in the 60s and 70s, the music, the literature, the art, the whole attitude that people had towards each other. And he said, I think in the 60s and 70s, virtually everyone in the country, if not everyone in the world, thought things were going to get better. And people thought we were talking about this thing coming down the road called the Internet. And that the Internet was going to come up with agricultural techniques to uh, feed the world and everything was going to get better. He says, now virtually everybody thinks that things are going to get worse. And me included. I think we've got a lot of problems. Um, this whole climate change thing is, ter is terrible. And it's facing us. And a lot of people are resisting doing a, uh, resisting solutions. Um, our whole political thing in America is, um, is just gotten so negative. And um, there's still wars going on. And it, it, there's a lot to be concerned about. But um, I recently went to a wedding where there were about, the, most everybody there was about 25 years old and, or in that age, age range. And everybody got up and said something and play, played an acoustic guitar, sang a song, read a poem. And it was so hopeful. Um, and there was so much love. Um that and do you know who Amanda Gorman is? Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Right, I just took Amanda Gorman's master class a couple of days ago, and she's just my hero. And she's 24 years old, and she is changing the world, in my opinion. And there's a lot of people like that, a lot of young people that I know. I've got a bunch of kids, and the, the young people have uh, a lot of hope. And so that's where my hope lies is, uh, you know, God bless Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer and so forth. But I think the energy that maybe the, not only the quality, but the quantity of energy uh, that's going to move the world is the young people. I agree. I agree. Seeing them and how they've shown up in the past few years brings me great hope. And I, you know, I don't, I don't have any kids myself. But I've, I have nieces, and when I look at them, I, I see the way they look at the world, the lens through they look through the world, and I hope that they keep that because that's going to make the world a better place. Having greater compassion for people. Um, seeing people's individuals, understanding that as a community we need to support each other because we're only as strong as the most vulnerable member of our society. 
is a huge, huge thing. And and I just really want to thank you for your work in bringing truth and beauty into the world because it's not an easy place to do it. And it we really need to inspire each other. Yeah, I just want to, you know, I guess we're going to get in closing that my belief about cannabis, if it, it it's a very positive thing. And like I said early on that I don't think anybody's going to take a psychedelic drug and sit on a beach and go, there's a good place for an oil well. It just changes your perspective. And I believe that if uh, cannabis, if it was allowed to proliferate on the planet the way it naturally does, where it grows in practically, I think it grows in any climate except Antarctica or someplace uh uh, if it was allowed to just proliferate the way it is, uh, the way it does naturally, and then use it for food, for, or use the seeds from nutrition, use it for building materials, use it for clothing, um, use it for its natural, what it's, it's designed for, um, people would be getting trace amounts of THC you know, handling the building a house or making a shirt uh, out of hemp. Um, and I think it would be a better world. And I think there would be less, there'd be fewer wars. And uh, like you said earlier, you know, it's just not a natural thing to commit an act of violence after you smoke a joint. Anything like, you know, if you drink a bottle of Jack Daniels, um, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And I think that if it were allowed to proliferate the way it naturally does, it would be a better world. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we have to have more conversations about that and the reasoning that certain people want to really limit the things that bring us joy and homeostasis and that they're... And it's it's not a conspiracy theory. It's been proven through the ages, through history, you know, good things that are taken away from people that create joy and happiness because there are other plans, there are other distractions, there are there are other ways of living that people want to push, not for people's well-being, but for other people's selfish needs or wants. And we need to talk more about that. Yeah, we need to talk more about that. That's what you're all about in your work is education. And I'll tell you my, maybe my last story on this interview that shows you my attitude. But this was years and years ago, 20, 30 years ago. Some kids were driving across the country in their Volkswagen bus and they got stopped for going 67 and a 65 on the freeway in Arkansas. And they had two ounces of pot in their locked suitcase in the back of their van. So I did the case and uh, I got them a pretty good deal and they did some community service out here in California where they lived. Uh, but it was a lot of phone calls and motions to the court and this and that. And, and uh, it was a bunch of work. And I had talked to the prosecutor many times uh, on the telephone. And so then the case was done and I got a pretty good resolution. And so as our last phone call, 
and I said, I remember the guys, I won't say his name, but the prosecutor, I said, well, Mr. So-and-so, I guess you solved your case. And I, he says, what do you mean? I said, oh, well, I guess you figured out why those kids were going 67. It must have been that pot and their locked suitcase that was making them do it. And <laughs> he flipped out and he started in on me. And he says, I want to tell you something, Mr. Anton. He got the heavy Arkansas accent. I want to tell you something, Mr. Anton. And I do not appreciate your casual attitude about marijuana. And those kids could have got a felony and you know it. And we're trying to wipe it out. And it's a marijuana is a big problem down here. And we're trying to get rid of it. And the, I don't know where you get off in California with your attitude about marijuana. And you think and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I'm just like, he's just yelling at me on the phone. And I'm finally and finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just said, you know what? I'm on here. I'm high on marijuana as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> What did he say? <laughs> I was no, you, you, I'm you, any. I was nervous saying that to a prosecutor because they all know each other and everywhere and everything. But right. I couldn't. But that shut him up. What could he say? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, he changed his mind when medical came to the table in Arkansas. Well, was that education? That's what made me think of the story. You know, did I educate him? I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you. Okay, so now I'll tell you one more story. There was a lawyer in Sonoma County, and he worked for years and years. Uh, this is a true story. And then this was a good friend of a good friend. And he uh, retired, and he went to court. And he and in his last day in court, he said to the judge, and judge, this is my last day in court, and I just wanted to tell you something. Almost every time that I've been in your courtroom, I've been high on marijuana. And um, and the judge said, I, he, you were you one of the best prepared, most articulate lawyers that's appeared in my courtroom. And that really gets me to uh, thinking about marijuana in a different way. And he told my friend, the judge did that that changed his entire attitude about marijuana after seeing this guy's work for years and years. And so there's education right there. Yeah, it is. It is. And and I think that like, especially like, talking to people who aren't working in policy or working in cannabis and they get upset about availability and prices around cannabis and the regulations it's it's you know part of the issues the disconnects that we're having is that some of our policymakers have really outdated views on who cannabis users are and so it's a it's a call to action for people who you know want to see change you need to get in touch with the people who count on your votes for their jobs and let them know you know i'm a i'm a functioning contributing member of society i pay taxes and i vote and i use cannabis and it's, you know, it changes the way they look. Because when I go in to do policy, like when I went to Arkansas to do stuff when they were setting up their medical cannabis programs, I wore a suit. I was in suit and heels. And, you know, they they look at you differently. And it make, somebody on Twitter once said, I bet she doesn't even use weed. And I started to laugh. And I was like, okay, so my job is done. Because, yes, I am a cannabis user. 
But when I go in and I talk to people, I I change I I make sure that I I have the appropriate look and I am with the program and people are like wow that changes the way I see it or or they're like you must not use it but you support it and I'm like no I am a cannabis user I am one of the faces of cannabis and there are a lot of people that look even more straight laced than I do that use it of course in my regular everyday life I'm not sure how straight laced I look in my caftans but <laughs> you know, it's it's an interesting thing where where people need to understand that there are more people than ever before using it. And even like talking about like, you know, back in a few years ago, and they're saying, oh, seniors are the, you know, largest growing group of people that are starting to use cannabis. And I'm like, you're wrong. They grew up during the war on drugs. They, if they weren't using it, they knew somebody who was. It's just that they kept their business to themselves because it could change your life if you got busted or were adjacent to anything like that. So don't tell me that they're the largest growing group. They just came out of the cannabis closet, plain and simple. Yeah, that's true. You know, Greg, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I I really am looking forward to, you know, having more with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in a week at Jerry Day. Yeah, I'm playing drums there uh, next week and looking forward to that. Yeah. If people want to follow your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? GregAnton.net. Perfect. Greg, it's been a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the great conversation. And, you know, it's, it's always it's always wonderful to talk to somebody who's done so many amazing things in cannabis. You know, it's lovely to have colleagues like you. And, and I have a soft spot in my heart for drummers, so even better. <laughs> all right. Until next time, my friend. Take care. Thank you, Sarah. And everyone remember, if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.